Well, if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, page 708 in the Church Bibles, if that would be of some help. Mark chapter 2 is where we're at. In just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 13. As most of you know, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse, so here we are this morning, verse 13. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, and you'll notice that in the NIV, and I think in the ESV as well, Um, It's in quotes. There's a statement being made there. In essence, maybe not sinners. We're eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the, quote, sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and, quote, sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep over the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Father, as we turn now to your word, we thank you that as it speaks to us, it forces us to think in ways in which by nature we would not. Equally, Father, it forces us to look at Jesus as he really is. So then, Father, would you please help us now in everything, beginning with myself, because we know, I know that We can't do anything as we should without your help. So we are at your mercy. And Father, we take great comfort knowing that you are a merciful God. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 and This truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is written all over this gospel. Indeed, it is all over the New Testament as well. Therefore, it is a very trustworthy saying that we ought to accept as someone considers the Jesus of the Bible and how the Jesus of the Bible's life headed toward that goal. His whole ministry was replete with occasions of him saving sinners by his grace from their sins. In fact, even as Jesus meets his earthly end, even on the cross, hanging there, his zeal to save sinners did not soften. So it's good to remind ourselves that that the Jesus of our imagination, which we would say, if we would, the Jesus of our imagination, which might be our authority, if he is left unchecked, by the Jesus of the Gospels, 
That's a pretend Jesus. Indeed, the Jesus of popular culture, if he's also left unchecked by the Jesus of the Gospels, he is equally a pretend Jesus. And a pretend Jesus doesn't really exist. And a pretend Jesus can't save anyone. And frankly, a pretend Jesus is a help to no one and a hindrance to everyone. Which is similar, if you think about it, as someone who says they follow Jesus Christ and they have no heart zeal, no interest, no track record, no concern of seeing unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. Therein, they're really a help to no one and more than likely a hindrance to everyone. Because it is bizarre, it is incongruous, it is out of place. Just as it would be for Jesus not to want to save sinners, it is bizarre for a follower of Jesus not to want to save sinners as well, according to the New Testament. And you see, this is true because when Jesus calls a man or a woman, his calling never leaves that person where he found them. When Christ speaks to you and he calls you and you try to stand still, you will not be standing still. You'll be going backward because the calling of Christ never leaves you where he finds you. You will either follow on, believe and obey and enjoy a righteousness not your own or you will be making a hopeless attempt just to maintain and stand still only to discover that you're actually going in the opposite direction. And you see, that's one of the advantages of studying the Gospels. In fact, We need to see how quickly Mark is showing his readers how very, very committed Jesus is uh, not to put together a religious club where everybody thinks alike and behaves alike, that kind of homogeneous mess that we see sometimes. No, but Jesus is putting together a group of people, frankly, the most unlikely people, and he saves them and he puts them on his ministry team so that they can be doing what he has been doing and they can be saying what he has been saying, which this morning and all spared uh, next Sunday morning, we will be able to make plain. You see, here's our problem. Too often we make uh, interpretations of Christian things based on what we see and based on what we think and not what the Bible says. In other words, we let our experience be the basis of our truth and not what the Bible says. We let our experience make judgments of what is true and what is not true and not what the Bible says. If you would, one more time, we let our experience adjudicate the Bible, judge the Bible, and we don't let the Bible judge our experience. So if your Bible is open, verse 13, you'll see that once again, Jesus is doing what he said he would come to do in chapter 1. He's teaching the crowds. He's telling them, we know this, verse 15, the kingdom of God is near. So that means you need to repent and believe the good news. So yes, he touches lives. Yes, he heals many of the people. Not all of them, but many of them. And yes, he casts out demons, but he hasn't come as a miracle worker. No, he's come as a teacher, as a preacher of the good news. And it seems that he's finished with the lesson, verse 14, and he's walking along. And that takes us to our first point, the scene is set. Now, I read this verse and the verses following many times this week. I've met it many times in my life. Most of you have as well. But here's the thing. Sometimes uh, our familiarity with the text makes us miss things in the text. 
So we read Levi was sitting in a tax collector's booth, which meant Levi was a tax official, a Jewish tax official. He's probably working because he was in that booth in the realm of customs and excise. So what we ought not to do is we should not think of Levi as the IRS. We should think of him as a border patrol. And you could not make the transition from one region to the next without paying him taxes on your travel or any materials that you were carrying from one region to the next in your travels. And that is the kind of thing that Levi was doing in his booth. So we would add to this, when Herod died, and this would have been um, King Herod, of uh, the one who ordered the slaughter of the innocents, when he died, he divided his territory largely into um, three regions for each of his sons, three sons. Two of his sons had territories which essentially bordered each other. They were separated by the Jordan River, and the point of entry and exit into those territories would be right through Capernaum, right through where Levi's booth was set up. So in that tax collector's booth would be people who were fulfilling their responsibilities. And of course, on that occasion, there was Jesus and there was Levi in his booth. Now, most of you know, but we need to understand that this job was absolutely despised and and detested by the people because Levi's job was to collect taxes for Rome on behalf of a person named a publican. And the publican was a person who purchased a a taxed uh, base for that territory. So there would be a region, there was so much money that ought to come out of that region, and the publican purchased um, the authority to work in that region. And as long as he got his price for what the region cost him, plus his profit, he pretty much let the tax collectors do what they do best and collect payment, and they could keep all the extra profits. So then as those things went at that time, there was no overseen dimension. And so essentially the tax collector could keep two sets of books. He could keep a set of books for his boss, the publican, and they could keep his own set of books, which basically was under the table. And he could collect as much as he could, as much as they could. And he knew um, what was needed. He'd pay his boss and he knew what he wanted. And so it's very easy to see that Levi was making a lot of money dishonestly and he was making much of that money off the backs of his own people, which meant Levi was just as much an outcast in his community as was the leper was two weeks ago that we learned of. Because this is what we need to know. When Levi took the job, this is what he knew for sure. No doubt about it. First of all, he knew that he would become a disgrace to his family. In other words, when, when his mother was having coffee with her friends at um, Caribou, and the question came up, what was Levi doing now that he graduated? She would not be bragging about how much her little Levi is making at the tax collector's booth. Indeed, she would have done everything she could to ignore the topic altogether because he was a disgrace to the family. Second, he would have been disqualified to serve in any civic capacity at all. So he couldn't be a witness. He couldn't be a civil servant. He couldn't work in a jury. He certainly couldn't be a judge. Thirdly, he would have been unable to attend synagogue worship. In essence, he was kicked out of the synagogue. And any other Jewish custom that he had a right to enjoy as a Jewish male, because he took that job, he could no longer enjoy them. In other words, he can't show up at church. He can't be picked for jury duty. His family thought of him as a total disgrace 
all because he willingly chose this job. Now, don't miss that. This is not poor Levi. This is Levi choosing that position, knowing very clearly every social outcome that would be part and parcel of his life if he said yes. And he said yes. But there's more. I dug a little deeper and I discovered that there were these ancient inscriptions dated around this time from that place which were written protests by fishermen who were complaining about how high the tolls were becoming on fish. So I thought to myself, okay, do I know any fishermen from this region who lived at that time in that place? And of course I said, yes, I know. I don't know them, know them, but I know what? Simon, Andrew, James, and John. All four of them, we learned in chapter one, of follow Jesus. So then I thought to myself, okay, now think, all right? Maybe Levi knew these guys, and maybe because of their business as fishermen, they had a few run-ins, right? It's very, very possible. Capernaum was, was not that large of a place. So I used my imagination, and I thought about this. Okay, up come the Fantastic Four to Levi's booth, pre-Christian days, right? And they put their money in Levi's box, and Levi says, wait a minute, guys. I just raised the toll a little bit, so you're a little short. And so the men reply, probably Peter, right? You cruck, right? You know, one more time. This is getting old. This is getting really old. And then I thought, what if after the four fishermen became followers of Jesus, they came across Levi again? Because again, that's very possible. So they came across Levi, and instead of an evil look and a cruel word that they gave to Levi before, I thought now that they followed Jesus, they would have given him a kind look and a better word, maybe about Jesus. And maybe, because Christians do this all the time, right? Maybe they asked Levi for his forgiveness for their behavior. So you see, there's no way Levi would have not heard at all about what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was saying in that region. So it's very easy for me to think, and others far wiser than I say the same thing, that that tax collector at that tax booth could have been saying something like this with his colleagues, right? So here they are. They have a little gap in time. All the tax collectors are there. Where in the Dickens have James and John and Simon and Andrew been? It's been a whole long time since we've taken their money. I mean, they used to come here through, through here routinely. I haven't seen them in months. And someone would say, well, didn't you hear? They're followers of that man named Jesus. They put their boats away. They folded up their nets. And now they follow him. And immediately Levi thinks in his mind the time that he got the better look and the kind word from these four men who used to give him an evil look and a cruel word. So Levi's putting two and two together and just as that moment, as he's, as he's thinking about all this, and I know it's conjecture, but it's nice to think about. Just at that moment, Levi is thinking all these things through. Here comes the Nazarene. Here comes Jesus, the Nazarene. That's the scene. The scene is set. Second, the selection is made. Now, Clearly, Levi, as a tax collector, was, as someone once said, he was used to people telling him where to go, right? So people would put their money in his box. He would say, thank you. And they would say, hey, Levi, you can keep that thank you. And you can go to, you know, wherever they said to go, right? I hate you. You're despicable. You steal from your own people. You're a harlot of Rome. You can go to. Now, let's stop for a second. We know this. Usually when we deal with money, we're not at our best. 
Usually when we have to deal with money, tension is high and our heart beats a little quicker. And so it's very, very easy for me to see that people weren't loving Levi as they were taking, in his, uh, taking their money to his booth. However, this time in verse 14, it's Jesus. And Jesus is not telling Levi where to go. Jesus is telling Levi where to come. Follow me. Now it's written in the imperative, which means it's a command. Jesus commanded Levi to follow him. And Levi did. He followed Jesus, just like Jesus said to do. And you'll notice there then that his words, Jesus' words, are marked with brevity. Just two English words, two English uh, Greek words as well. And it's marked with authority. So this is the authoritative word of Christ. Because the words of Jesus Christ are not like anyone else's words. He is authority. Which is why when you read the Bible, oftentimes uh, the, the words just jump on you as an authority. So they either comfort or convict or, or counsel. Because who can do what Jesus did here? Follow me. No gap. Follow me right now. And Levi does. And immediately, now I want you to think with me, this man who was culturally despised, uh, domestically an outcast, who hadn't been to a church service in years, and he chose that way of life himself, is now on the team, the ministry team. We'll call him number five. He's number five on the ministry team of Jesus, which is going to turn the world upside down as they preach the gospel. Now, you can't pass that up and not think things through. I did. I came up with three things that I think we need to know. This is the first thing. Is this not stunning? This man, Levi, after the ascension of Christ, he's going to write a gospel, Matthew's gospel. He will serve Jesus Christ according to the Fox's Book of Martyrs. He's going to serve Jesus Christ in modern-day Iran and Ethiopia in which in Ethiopia, because of his devotion to Jesus, because he was preaching the cross, he'll suffer as a martyr. He's going to be slain with a speared battle axe in the city of Nabada in A.D. 60. And all of that, all of it, the writing, the witness, the preaching of the cross, uh, the putting his head literally out there for Jesus, all that started because Jesus went to him when Levi was dead in his sins and Jesus rescued him, not from a physical death, not yet, but Jesus rescued him from his sins. Now, who does that sound like? Well, it sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. He's on the Damascus Road. Paul was not searching for Jesus. Paul was not searching for Jesus. He was on the hunt for Jesus' people. He was a terrorist opposed to Jesus. He was out of his mind, according to his own words, in opposition to Jesus until what? Jesus went to Paul and Jesus spoke to Paul in his authority. Saul, Saul, right? Why are you persecuting me? And then later on he says, Saul, because Saul got knocked off his, his uh, horse, we'll say. Get up, Saul. Go into that city. And you're going to be told what you must do. And what happened? He got up. He went to the city and he had to wait. And he was told by Jesus what to do. And what, what did Jesus tell him? Well, it's the same thing Jesus tells Mark. It's the same thing Jesus tells Matthew. It's the same Jesus thing that Jesus has told all his people. We need to tell people to repent. The kingdom is coming and believe the good news. So this is stunning. These are prototypes These are examples of what takes place in a conversion. Now listen, 
This is why I said in the beginning, don't let your experience make judgment on the Bible. Let your Bible make judgment on your experience. Now, we understand that we do not all have these kinds of ranges in our service to Jesus Christ. But as Mark so clearly says, if we follow Jesus as Levi did and Paul did, he, Jesus, will make the most unlikely people fishers of men and women. It begs the question, right? Do you find yourself in that group? Are you in the unlikely group? If you are, then you need to take heart. Jesus Christ promises you he will help you. He will make you fishers of men and women as you what? As you follow him. As you follow Jesus, Jesus promises you that he will make you fishers of men. It's guaranteed. It's happened all throughout history. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. That's the first thing. This is stunning. Second thing, grace is amazing. You often hear a lot of religious talks like this. Okay, kids, you read your Bibles, you say your prayers, and you keep improving. And you know, you might need to go to some super X training group. And if you do that, Jesus is going to pick you for his service. I mean, he won't be able to help himself. You're just going to be sitting in the seat and you'll be shining and Jesus will walk by and he'll go, whoa, who is that? I want them on my team. You know what I call that? That's called Christianized Darwinism. Kind of the survival of the fittest, the cream of the crop. And then, then along comes Jesus to this wicked, wicked Levi who loves money a whole lot more than he loves God and he loves his people. And Jesus says to him, you are mine. You are mine. Follow me. And the man does. That's grace. That's grace. You see, Levi in the eyes of most was not the obvious and popular choice. Now, loved ones, if you're thinking, that ought to ring a bell to you. Because it does to me. Do you think I was the obvious choice? Do you think you were the obvious choice? The popular choice when Jesus saved you? I mean, do you? If God saved you, do you think he saved you because he found you so tremendously appealing and attractive? He just kind of walked by and goes, whoa, who is that? Do you think that? You see, if you or I think that we were the obvious choice then we don't understand the gospel. We certainly don't understand grace and we don't understand the authority of Jesus Christ because what this occasion reveals here is the wonder of God's grace. Levi did not deserve what Jesus said to him at all and we did not either. You know the song, we know the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we were first saved, we probably sang that part, a wretch like me with some gusto. But what happens? We move along in years. We forget what Jesus has taken us from. We forget sometimes how sinful sin is. And we sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good, hardworking, wise-thinking, money-saving uh, guy or girl like me. And we're like, we weren't that bad as the years go by. So, just a little bit of grace. Maybe even that. I mean, I was trying. <laughs> this is stunning. Grace is amazing. Third thing, he does have to leave everything, doesn't he? So Luke's gospel tells us what, what Mark's gospel implies, that Levi left everything and followed Jesus. 
And it's not as though Jesus tells everybody to leave their employment. Why? Well, because here, Levi's employment was clearly sinful. He could not continue to do what he was doing and be okay with it. It was clearly a sinful line of work the way it was done at that time. Therefore, he couldn't follow Jesus and continue to knowingly be a cheat. He realized that this wasn't Levi adding Jesus, adding Jesus to you know, the sum total of his life. So I have this religious section in my life. And I have certain gaps that I need to fill. And I have certain fears that I want Jesus to take care of. And there's certain bad things that I never want to come my way. And <clears throat> I need Jesus to help me feel better about myself. But there's just one section. There's just one thing. And I'm not going to let Jesus touch that. That wasn't Levi's conversion. This is a command. It is immediate and it is total. This is a picture of grace and Levi obeys. Now that is not to say that when Jesus calls us into his kingdom that we'll never serve a sin again. I promised you read the gospels, Levi's sin. But it is to say now the fight is on and it's a sore fight to the bitter end and yet we're still following Jesus. See, that's the point being made. He couldn't follow Jesus and stay the way he was because Jesus would not let him. That was clear. Because of this, and again, we need to do this. I want you to use a little bit of your imagination and I want you to think uh, Levi post-booth quitting, right? So you're in the office place, some of you, and you know how quickly the word spreads in office context. So Levi leaves and he doesn't come back. His colleagues are like, okay, I wonder what in the world happened to Levi. He's gone now. And someone says, well, he'll be back. <laughs> the money's way too good. Trust me, he'll be back. He'll get a little religion and he'll settle down and... Wednesday, he'll be back. But Wednesday comes and he's not back. And so it dawns on them that Levi must be a follower of Jesus because if he would have come back on Wednesday, he would not have been a follower of Jesus. You understand that? If he would have come back, he wouldn't have been a follower of Jesus. It's the same way sometimes when people respond to Jesus and they've been manipulated emotionally, they've been terrorized, if you would, mentally, and the empty promises, okay, Jesus will help you and he'll help you with your dollars and he will um, do things for you that are just incredible and all you need to do is raise your hand, send in a check, walk down the aisle, and you're in. Presto, you're in. But by Thursday, three weeks from then, they're not into all Jesus at all and because they were never following Jesus. They showed no signs of life, no repentance, no worship, no thanks to Jesus for forgiving them because all they did was raise their hand. All they did was send in the check, walk down the aisle, but they're not following Jesus. So you see, the reason why you know you're a follower of Jesus is because you're still following Jesus. So we may be a wretched sinner. We may have a horrible week, month, or year. But one of the signs that you're a follower of Jesus is what? You're following Jesus. I mean, it's almost too easy. It's so straightforward that you can miss it. Now, this Wednesday evening, I told you we're going to have a baptism. And we're going to be baptism, baptizing excuse me, some little kids. And I was thinking this week that I was six years old when I was led to Jesus Christ. Seven when I was baptized. And, and I remember like it all happened yesterday. I went into the room after the service with my pastor and my brother Steve. And I told the pastor, he said, what do you need? I said, I can't stop sinning. I need Jesus to forgive me. Uh, I'm a sinner. I hate my brother. I hit my sister last week. They're Jeff Killian who lives down the street. I can't stand. I hate him. 
I lied to my parents, you know, a, a week Thursday. There's a whole lot more. But I need Jesus to forgive me, and I need him to come over and take over my life. And of course he did, and here I am. And I, I am following Jesus after all these years. Enormously imperfect, but still following Jesus. So you see, the reason why they knew Levi had been changed by Jesus was that he kept following Jesus. A good question? Are you following Jesus? Not the Jesus of your imagination. Are you following the Jesus of the Bible? And I don't want you to think that that means you have to follow Jesus perfectly. Clearly you're not. Clearly I am not. But at the end of the day, here we are. Through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. It's grace that brought me through this far. And grace which will lead me home. That's the second point. Isn't, isn't this stunning? Isn't grace amazing? But you've got to leave some stuff behind. Okay. Number one, the scene is set. Levi is a really, really bad guy. Number two, but the selection is made. Jesus makes, by his grace, he makes Levi a good guy, a disciple, a follower of Christ. Thirdly, then, the doctor is in, isn't he? Now, a Levi is apparently so thrilled at his new life that he throws a retirement party, right? And his old friends want to come. Why, why are you retiring, Levi? Well, because Jesus said to. Do you want to meet Jesus? He's going to be here at my house, and he's going to tell you everything. Okay, we're going to go. I mean, this is so big. This has not happened before. We want to hear what this guy has to say. And you see the guest list, right? It's some of the old group, the old, the old tax collectors and sinners. Now, we're going to tackle this a lot more in depth next time. But just for now, it's pretty easy to imagine that some of the sinners were probably people like prostitutes at the dinner party with Jesus. And they were tax collectors, of course. And I learned a word, psychophants. And what that means is they were the people who were the squealers, right? The informants who make their money just telling on people. And then there were enforcers there, the muscles. And of course, there were pimps there. And of course, there were pushers there. I, I did a Google search. Was there a drug problem in the first century? And about four reputable so sources said there was a huge drug problem in the first century. So then I put down the list, prostitutes, tax collectors, squealers, enforcers, pimps, pushers. And then I put, what a party. <laughs> what a party. So immediately someone would say, wait a minute, you, you said to follow Jesus meant you had to leave uh, your old stuff behind. Way behind, absolutely. However, I said, to be more specific, I said that when you follow Jesus, you have to leave your sin behind. But not sinners. But not sinners. Because in the new life that Jesus gives to us, as we follow Jesus, Jesus as we follow Jesus, we'll find that we must find ourselves in these kinds of settings. I'm going to say it again. In the new life that Jesus gives to us, as we follow Jesus, we will find that we must find ourselves in these kinds of settings. Now that begs the question, do you? Do you find yourself? Is your home open to this kind of thing. This is what we know. Bible groups are easy to go to. 
Prayer groups, easy to go to. Service helps, easy to go to. What's the hardest one? Let's be honest. What's the hardest one? To open our homes, open our doors wide to sinners. I want you to come over to my place. We've got a great meal prepared for you. And let's eat and talk. Many a person came to Christ through their stomach. Isn't that fair? There's a guy named John Dixon. He's a pastor and author. This is what he says. He tells a story of the milkshake and hamburger lady. Every Thursday afternoon, she made hamburgers and milkshakes for five teenage boys, one of whom was John. And he lived in Australia. And at that time, uh, he, she was a tutor of the Bible. And in the public school system, they taught the Bible, not as Christianity, but they just taught the Bible as a history book. So the lady's a Christian. She's tutoring the boys. Every Thursday, hamburgers, milkshakes, Bible. Some of the kids would steal things from her when, uh, when they would come over. And she let it go for a while because it's hamburgers and it's milkshakes and it's Jesus. And by God's grace, John says, eventually four out of the five teens would confess faith in Jesus Christ. And two of them are now in full-time service. One of them is John Dixon. In the first service that it ended, someone came up to me. He said, guess what? I said, what? He goes, last night, I had a bunch of sinners at my house. We had hamburgers and root beer. I said, close enough. Close enough. Hamburgers, root beers, and Jesus. He was crying. He was crying to me, telling me how happy he was. And we said it at the beginning. Christ Jesus came in the world to what? To save sinners. And if we follow Jesus, what does he say? Don't make it hard. We will be fishers of men and women. Which makes verse 15 all, doesn't that make sense? Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now I want you to know that as we close, this story made such an impact on the gospel writers and on the early church that in Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, it all gets full coverage. It's in every one of the gospels, which means, okay, it's repetitive, which means this is important. This is important. That's why I've chosen to take two Sundays. So let me close by saying this. At the party, somehow the Pharisees are there. They're not there, there, but they're there, right? And they're able to critique and question what should have been obvious, right? What should have been obvious? God delights to save people. However, the Pharisees are so unaware of this. They are so sick. They're intoxicated by their own righteousness, intoxicated by how they view the world. And that, in turn, gave them the liberty in their own mind to critique, question, and complain. And you see it there. Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? So it's none of, holy cow, this guy Levi is sitting next to a pretty decent guy in Jesus and he left his old nasty job behind. This is great. They're not happy about that at all. And they won't break bread with these people. They will not eat. They will not accept them like Jesus has. Now, if you're thinking, doesn't that ring a bell? Because there's another story kind of like that. There was another story of a guy who refused to go to the party. Remember, it was the prodigal son. And so the prodigal son comes back. The elder brother who represents who? The Pharisees. And the elder brother gets near the house and he hears the music playing and he sees the dancing. He calls the servant and says, hey, what's going on here? The servant's like, great news. Your brother's back. Your brother's back. He was lost and now he's found. He was blind and now he sees. 
You go in there. You go have yourself a ball. This is great. It's your brother. But what does the text say? In Luke's gospel, he refuses to go in. He refuses to go in. Why? It's your brother, dude. Come on. He's back. Why, why are you not going to the party? Why are you not going to go there and enjoy what's happened? Let me tell you why he's not going to go to the party. Because he does not understand grace. That's why. I'm not going to party for someone like my brother who's a wretched sinner. I'm making my statement. He's made a mess of his own existence. He wasted all of dad's money. Remember the Pharisees, the Bible says, love money. He wasted all of dad's money. And if there's going to be a party, it should be a party for me. I mean, I've kept every rule. I did everything right. I didn't waste a penny. It was always, yes, sir. No, sir. I'm there, sir. What do you need, dad? If there was going to be a party, it should be for me. So I'm not going to the party. So today... There could be people here this morning or you could know of people who are very, very far from Jesus. Not because they're bad, but because they're good and they're trusting in their goodness to save them. So your good will give you that, but you're not good enough for God. You're good, but you don't think you need God. And therein, you don't really think a whole lot of Jesus. And you're certainly not following Jesus. So you don't think you're sick. So you'll never believe that the goodness that God requires is only a goodness that Jesus achieved by a suffering and death on the cross. And he gives it to everyone who realizes this one simple little thing, that they are sick and they need a doctor. So you don't think you're sick. And loved ones, here's the warning. If you don't think you're sick, then you'll never go to Dr. Jesus. And if you don't go to Dr. Jesus, you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian. But guess what? The doctor's always in. The doctor's always in. A lot to think about. I'm going to be up here for a little bit. If you have a question or two, I'd be happy to do my best to try to answer them. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for grace. We'd have to, to be a foolish person not to think that you save any other way but by grace. That we can relate to you at every moment of our days, uh, good days, bad days, days of rebellion, days of obedience. We can relate to you always through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and never what we do or fail to do. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that as we follow this Jesus, that we'll become more like this Jesus that you'll guard every one of us from following the Jesus of our imagination and give us the grace we need to follow the Jesus of the scriptures. It is a privilege, it is a high privilege to belong to you, Father. And we sang it today and we'll say it now. We are amazed at your grace. And we thank you, Father, that you called us when we were dead in our sins 
and you made us alive, alive to follow you. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours today and forevermore. Amen.